Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. As you can see, the Cook, Eat, Learn test uh, mobile kitchen is on hold over the summer. It'll be back in September, but we're having the team continue to provide um, some breakfast for us, and they will be intermittently having education around those breakfasts as well during the summer. I'm particularly delighted with today's speaker being here, James Stahl. He's our incoming Chief of the Section of General Internal Medicine to be with us starting in September, and we are delighted that he would be with us today for this Grand Rounds. To introduce him, I'd like to have Roshini Pinto-Pal come and tell us a little bit about James. Roshini is the Interim Section Chief in General Internal Medicine, an Associate Professor of Medicine. She's also the Vice Chair in our Department for Clinical Affairs, a co-Vice Chair with Chris Lowry. She also co-directs the GAM, the Geriatric and Ambulatory Clerkship. She co-directs the Undoctoring Clerkship. And she's, the, uh, she's a, um, in the dean's office as, as a dean for student affairs. So we are just delighted to hear from Roche about uh, James this morning. Roche, come tell us about him. It is my distinct pleasure to uh, introduce James Stahl, who, as you hear, will be coming to be our Section Chief in General Internal Medicine September 1st. You haven't forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> James, I'll tell you a little bit about Dr. Stahl. Dr. Stahl got his bachelor's uh, degree in physics from the University of Pennsylvania and um, his medical degree from McGill, following which he did an internship and residency in Cornell and then a National Medi uh, Library of Medicine um, fellowship at Tufts in medical informatics. And he capped all this with an MPH at uh, the University of Pittsburgh. Since 2000, he has been um, at Harvard and um, practices and does research at Mass General Hospital in, in, a, in what I think, at least, are his two favorite subjects, systems engineering and mind-body medicine. But rather than go through his CV and tell you all the impressive things he has done, I will tell you that in systems engineering, what impressed me most is the area he has covered. Um, he has directed and looked at models of the OR of the future, and this was in 2000. <coughs> um, uh, um, models of uh, the future, of ambul an ambulatory practice of the future, also in like 2006. He has done things in hand hygiene and hospital-acquired infection. Um, and most recently, actually, in modeling of clinic panels. So really wide variety of things, all of which are of great interest to us. But despite this impressive uh, accomplishments, he is a researcher, a clinician, a teacher, a mentor. What I think people who have met him over the last several months will be impressed with and, and are impressed with is that he's incredibly nice. <laughs> A big compliment, um, very collegial, funny, which I think is wonderful, very zen-like and centered. And uh, it's true, all true. And we really cannot wait for him to come uh, in September. His talk today, I think, combines some of his big loves. Um, and he tells me that this is not a canned speech. He has specially crafted it for us, combining systems engineering, stress and resilience, and a number of other things. So we welcome you and your family to the Upper Valley in, in fall, and you here today at the Grand Rounds Podium. Thank you.
good, great. So thank you for those, those wonderful introductions. I'm very touched. Um, so uh, we'll just get right to it. This talk may be a little bit different from what you, you might be expecting, and I hope that's the case. Um, so we're going to talk about stress to resiliency and the effects of mind-body medicine from, uh, from the effects on the individual to the healthcare system. So obviously no conflicts of interest, except maybe it might be that I'm coming here. That might be a conflict of interest. Um, so the teaching points that I like people to think about um, as I go through this is that we want people to start thinking about understanding the effects of stress on the individual, understand the effect of stress on the healthcare delivery system, and understand the effect of, effect of the relaxation response and resiliency training on individuals and the system together. So basically the talk structure is going to roughly follow this outline. <clears throat> We're going to look about the effects of the stress on individuals, and first on the individuals, then on the healthcare system, an overview of the intervention that we did a recent study at, well, some recent studies on, and looking at how that effect impacts individuals and how that effect, uh, how the uh, intervention impacts the healthcare delivery system. So, just a brief review in terms of background. So, the state of the healthcare system, well, we all know it's under stress, right? So, we're getting older, we're getting wider, and we're getting more diverse. And all those trends put us at incre uh, put increasing demands on our healthcare delivery system. Uh, core psychological and physiological resilience in response to stress drives a great deal of healthcare utilization. More than 80% of patients show evidence of lack of resiliency or psychological stress when they show up uh, in clinics or in the hospital. Stress-related illnesses are the third highest cause of healthcare expenditures in the country after heart disease and cancer, uh, each of which have carry their own stress burden, obviously. And these may be considered allostatic load disorders. I'll get into that in a little bit. So just a little, because I'm going to be talking about stress, I'll try to put a little humor in here. Um, so stress in primary care, because we'll be talking a lot about primary care. So 90% of people suffering from stress-related problems seek help through primary care. And these folks tend to be high health care utilizers and can comprise as much as 70% of physician-patient panels. Uh, common physical manifestations of stress, headaches, back pain, insomnia, chest pain, GERD, all these other things are among the most frequent reasons that people seek health care. In addition to this, for the primary care docs in the audience, are also simultaneously contending with many other stressors, so they're under stress as well. Right? So from a clinician's perspective, it's a bit of a perfect storm. You know, so there's increasing demand, there's working, work, worsening workflow, and constrained capacity, the capacity being ourselves, the docs. Um, so that's my response to, if anybody remembers Bill the Cat. Um, so stress is a mind-body phenomenon that affects both the physical and the me mental health, the course of illness, and the effectiveness of disease management. So it impacts everything. Stress is not just a symptom, it's also a cause for a lot of what we do. And managing stress is thus central to achieving and maintaining wellness for both patients and clinicians and, uh, and for the appropriate use of clinical resources. So what is the effect? Of, uh, let's look at the effect of stress on the individual and the system. So what is stress? Because <clears throat> I, I always like to define my terms. So technically, stress is any positive or negative force exerted on the system. And that is usually used uh, when the system is pushed into disequilibrium or breakdown. Uh, for those of you who don't know, stress was actually first used clinically by Hans Selye at the University of Montreal. Um, he was an endocrinologist. He derived that term from the field of metallurgy. So it did not come from medicine first. It actually came from engineering. 
Um, and this, this use that to describe how trauma uh, can cause adrenal overactivity and with it a disruption of the bodily equilibrium. And this work built on Walter Cannon's work um, on the fight or flight response and uh, you know, looking at you know, how the autonomic system responds to threat. Now, these, it's also been, CES has also been described as a allostatic low disorder by McEwen. That's in, in New England Journal <laughs> 93. And that really means um, an allostatic load or is a problem where there's a compensatory response in the system without systemic adaptation. Okay, so you're getting stress, you're using your resources, but you're not changing, and eventually the system can overload and break. So the goal is resiliency, you know, which is the ability of the system to rebound, thrive, and adapt in response to, to a stressor. And obviously we want this for both our patients and our system. So what happens in the individual? So str the stress response or the threat response is really an involuntary reflexive response um, where you, the, in response to the threat, the hypothalamus, the limbic system, the cortical system interact. There's increased sympathetic nervous tone. Um, uh, CRH is released, a cortical-releasing uh, hormone, and that releases ACTH, which affects the adrenal cortex and the adrenal medulla, which again releases those stress hormones, and that re results in increased oxygen demand, blood pressure, and heart, heart rate. And so that is the classic physiologic description of a stress response. It's also been, as we've learned more in, the, in neurology and di dive more deeply into this, we realize that and a lot of this is what we characterize or call a bottom-up response, right? So it's being driven by the medulla and the amygdala systems. Uh, probably using the right, wrong, wrong adjective there, but the amygdalic, amygdala system. And so, and the, uh, the amygdala is actually responsible for our th threat recognition system. So, again, there's a lot of physiology behind this, and we've learned a lot about what that means in terms of stress. So, <clears throat> the thing is, this is not just a cardiovascular response. When there's a threat response and the, uh, the, the, uh, the CRH gets released and the, uh, the sympathetic uh, uh, terminal units activate into the systems, a, you know, it, there's activation at the cellular level and there's a cascade of, um, of metabolic, uh, both uh, metabolic and inflammatory pathways in, at, this, at the tissue level. So, and the arrow is pointing to MK, uh, NFKB, which is one of the key components we'll talk about in a little bit. And in response to that, we also get an immune response where factors such as TNF, IL-6, and IL-1 get released. And these, in turn, talk back to the brain, go uh, talk through the, um, the brain-blood barrier and influence our mental state. So, in fact, as we experience stress, this is a cardiovascular Neuroendoimmunologic pathway that affects everything in our in our health. <laughs> so just a little talk about it. NFKB. Just is a very interesting thing, just from terms of upcoming research that you'll see probably more and more. This is a transcription factor, particularly on the inflammatory pathway, acts as one of the master switches in this pathway, and it becomes has become very important responses to stress and cytokines. And one of the research projects that uh, one of our colleagues at, who's affiliated with the Benson Henry Institute showed that using this intervention drastically reduces the inflammatory response in IBD, and partly through the M NFKB pathway. So stress on the healthcare delivery system. So probably everybody identifies with this. Um, and again, ACK. 
so what is a system? You know, I talk about systems, but you know, uh, I'm kind of implying, but let's talk about in terms, terms again. A system is uh, any set of connected persons, parts, or things forming a com more complex whole. And connection implies a dynamic relationship is present. So not just the things that, uh, that they're there, but, but that connection means that there's feedback between the elements of the system. So, an el so every system uh, has feedback, as we've just seen in the physiological uh, description I, I just showed, but also systems like healthcare have feedback loops in them that will become very important as we try to figure out what we're doing. And as a result, systems may behave very differently than some of their parts. So we've got to be very careful, when, and this is a whole other talk, but we have to be very careful when we talk about what we understand because we may understand elements of the systems, but systems may behave differently. So we need to think about both the science of systems as well as the science of our traditional scientific methods. And there's a whole world of industrial engineering out there. So any system can experience stress, whether it's micro or macro. Again, individual stress can lead to poor health, which can lead to incre an increased need for health care. In healthcare, stress can lead to poor access, reduced ability to deliver high-quality care. So for example, when we have overutilization, docs may burn out. That can reduce our capacity to see patients, which will reduce access, which redu makes other people stress, and around and around we go. So, uh, so talking about systems, all systems have certain similarities. By being a system, having those feedback loops, and so on and so forth. And I, 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 when I was putting these slides together, I was saying, uh, how much Greek do I want to throw at these people? <laughs> how mathematic do I want to make it? And I'm going to try to keep this very simple, OK? So this is System Dynamics 101. Now, this is a simplistic version of uh, what's called a single server model, OK? This is a model that is, and its most simplistic form is where one person is demanding service and another, per another person is providing the service. Uh, and the advantage of this particular model to look at is that it's one of the few that are actually solvable mathematically, OK? And as a result, you can actually learn some sort of general principles about all systems by looking at this simplified system. So enough said on that. So we have demand and we have supply. We have lambda, which represents the demand, which usually you can think about as the uh, how fast things are arriving, so how fast patients are coming into the system, and mu being our capacity or our resource providing the service, in this case in healthcare that would be clinicians. You know, this could also work down the physiological level, like cells and response to various signals and so on and so forth. Um, and we have an important measure called, one of the most important measures, and there are several important measures to think about, is utilization, which is the ratio of demand to capacity. Now, for the engineers in the room, I apologize. I'm using some of these terms a little loosely, okay? But we can talk about that a little after. So I know, that looks, that looks even worse, doesn't it? <laughs> So another important measure is flow time. So what is flow time? time? That technically means the time into the system, the time out of the system. In the case of patients, the time you need care, the time they actually receive care. Okay. So now I bring this up because there's certain again by looking at this sort of simplified model here, right? Uh, you can actually learn things by just looking at it. So what do we see about flow time? Well, we see that a lot of it's dependent on our ability to provide service, right? So that's a big piece of it, but it's not the only piece of it. You have this awful looking function. Um, and we see that that time to get your care or to receive the care or get through the system is related to that utilization function, right? 
that arrival rate and the uh, inner capacity. It's also related to how much variability is in the system. The more variability, the more problems you can get. And it's also inversely related to this beta. And you can see as that, fa that ratio beta gets closer to one, that float time is going to explode, okay? So as utilization approaches one, where the demand and supply are almost equally balanced, you get a system that we call congestion. And that is not necessarily a good thing. Okay. So, so another important uh, factor to think about is the number in the queue or number waiting. Uh, this is all relates for those of you are interested, called queue theory or queuing theory. And so again, you see that the relationships are very much related to utilization and variability. So the ability to respond to demand is directly related to our ability to provide service, that utilization rate, the variability in the system. And again, when beta is close to one, we have a system called congestion, which I've had the pleasure of experiencing to a great deal in Boston in the last couple of years. Um, and Boston is a classic case of where the system is under stress. Like the transit system this winter, you know, failed, right? Because the system was near full congestion and there was not any resource or capacity left to actually handle the additional stress of 100 inches of snow. Okay. You guys here might be able to handle that. Boston, not so much. So to build a resilient system, you have to work on demand, you have to work on supply, and you have to work on variance. So then again, this provides sort of a framework in which we think about how we actually do some of these, address some of these issues. So I wanted to actually illustrate some of this thing. So this is where some of the geeky, so this is a model. And this is a software platform. We can actually model some of these systems. And so you're gonna see what a system looks like in a steady state where patients are coming in, patients are being allowed to supply service. You can see that queue that builds up sometimes, but in the steady state system, it kind of ebbs and flows. Now we've gone to congestion. You see when we got to one, the, wait, the waiting list went really large. And then we'll just reset the system in a second. In a second, maybe another second, there we go. And so now we'll go to a system where we have increased variance. Well, it so doesn't affect things quite so fast, but once it happens, the two can actually cause a lot of problems, sometimes even bigger problems than just being in a congested state. And then finally, you know, after we clear the system out, and as you notice, even when you change the conditions of the system, it doesn't clear instantaneously. Now, when you have congestion and variance, these things can actually explode quite, quite dramatically. And you may notice that well, in the steady state system, the uh, ideal utilization rate was somewhere in the 80 percent. I mean, now that varies from system to system, but that you know, so that's a very, that's a simplified model. But you can apply this to more. Oops. Try that again. Let's see which one's working. So if we want to actually model more exact systems of actually how clinics actually work, this is another one of those models that we can actually do. This is a model I use looking at what is the impact of introducing a new technology into a clinic in terms of workflow and other, other things. Um, so, so these same principles apply to what, what we are doing 
this is a nice little, uh, you can ask, ask questions that you didn't know beforehand. This is a, a model looking at, you know, how many residents should you precept? And that was a very interesting question. <laughs> it turns out, I mean, just a little historical background, the number of residents that you are allowed to precept is actually a fairly arbitrary number, right? I don't know, how, anybody know what the PATH Commission was? All right, so, so once upon a time, I don't have much time I have to digress, but once upon a time, you know, they didn't, people didn't really care too much about how many residents you were supervising, and in Philadelphia, there were certain hospitals that got in trouble because people were precepting their residents from, from the Caribbean, okay, which was not a good thing, and some people got in trouble, and so they conveyed a meeting of all the wise elders of whatever, and they said, the number of residents that you should precept is four. And then I asked myself, well, where did that number four come from? And nobody knew. <laughs> so you can't run a trial on that. But you could do a simulation to find out, well, how good is that number? And under what conditions is that number? And it actually turns out four is not too far off base, though it does vary. Clearly, the more intense a clinic or more complex patients, like in a geriatric clinic, you know, you probably want fewer residents being precepted you know, per doc, and in, let's say, a student health clinic, you could probably close your eyes and just, you know, just tell them to wash their hands, keep their pants on, and they're okay. <laughs> so, so let's just go here. Just go back here. So, back to stress. So, the goal, obviously, is to go from a vicious cycle to a virtuous cycle. And that's actually not that hard to do if you change the balance of the dynamics. So the systems can actually correct themselves quite rapidly given the right circumstances. You just have to be aware of what those are and help look for what those root causes are. So let's look at the inter an intervention. I'm calling it an intervention. It's not the intervention because there are many interventions that can help, but it's an intervention that, that, I, that we've been looking at for a while. So the intervention here is called SMART 3RP. This, it's been rebranded. It used to be just 3RP. Um, so this is... Um, systems management and resiliency training and relaxation response training, and I'll go what that, those mean in a little bit. So the stress management and resiliency training program is a three-tiered process which involves ongoing practice of tools that elicit the relaxation response, things like meditation, yoga, and other things. And sorry, Roche, we're not going to lead everybody into a meditation today, So, but maybe later. Um, and building awareness of stress and its negative effects. Uh, promoting social connectedness and healthy lifestyle behaviors. And it's a multimodal program incorporating elements of cognitive behavior therapy, positive psychology, lifestyle modification, and a few other things. And the typical structure involves is a group, 12 to 8 people in a, in a participating group uh, with a group leader and with eight weekly one to two hour sessions. Excuse me. And the sessions are roughly oriented, though there's some, a little bit, it varies a little bit on, on some details. Um, the orientation, learning with the relaxation response, stress awareness, mind-body connection, creating adaptive perspectives, uh, promoting positivity, healing states of mind, and, and humor, and staying resilient. So the results on individuals have been shown to be pretty good. So again, it seems to reverse the stress response. Uh, so this is sort of, you can think of this as a top-down stress response, response to stress, right? So here, um, you're using the prefrontal cortex and various elements of the uh, prefrontal cortex to actually modify the stress response. And this has actually been mapped out, you know, in the Merino Center using PET imaging and functional MRI and all sorts of things like that. 
It does require conscious elicitation and frequent practice. So there is work involved in actually doing this. And, but if you uh, manage to do it and get into good practice, all those things start getting better. So there's discrete, decreased sympathetic activity, you know, decreased activity in the adrenal system, and uh, all sorts of good things in terms of the um, uh, cardiovascular system. And so there have been a variety of studies, but I'm just going to highlight a few examples of some of the clinical effectiveness of 3RP. Uh, there uh, has been very good evidence showing it's a benefit in cardiac rehab and hypertension. As I mentioned, some very recent studies um, looking at its effect on inflammatory bowel disease and IBS. Um, it's actually been shown to help uh, stressed out physicians, particularly palliative care workers. This was one of the uh, uh, studies that it was done. Uh, works in stressed out uh, high school students, so it works with the public as well. And for the residents in the room, we're actually in the middle of a, uh, a program looking at the effect of uh, doing this program with residents. Uh, and we're running residents at a few institutions through a modified version of the intervention, and they're also having their Fitbits and other things to track with, uh, to see what happens. So, um, and they were chosen because for some reason people think residents are stressed. I don't know why. So this is just one of the, some of the data from the cardiac rehab stuff recently published in the American Heart Journal and looking at the effect of adding the uh, cardiac wellness, the Benson Henry Cardiac Wellness Program, which is essentially a modified 3RP program to, in, into one of the arms of, the, uh, of those uh, uh, receiving cardiac rehab. And obviously there's a, a significant reduction in, in mortality rate. So I'm going to segue a little bit, a little, little quick tutorial. So a lot of the work recently has looked at how the effect on the cellular level. Uh, that's not my work, but, you know, it's my colleague's work. And so, and this looks at, look, how do you look at gene expression profiling heat maps? So just so you know, you can look at one of these things. Red usually means activity is increased. Green usually means activity is decreased. The brighter the spot, the, the, the more indicates the greatest, the greater the change. Columns, uh, subjects are in the columns, genes are in the rows. And the cluster analysis, these, these, uh, so clusters are group, you know, similar, people with similar expression patterns. And here we have an example of a cluster of down-regulated down genes in the upper right. So it turns out uh, relaxation response actually has a dose effect. So... Here was a study by uh, Dusek et al. Um, showed that you took healthy controls, uh, people who had been through an eight-week program and then, and and then, and then long-term meditators, and you looked at their gene expression in the inflammatory gene, genes related to inflammatory processes and genes related to uh, metabolic processes, and we see that the, the inflammatory genes get down-regulated and the energy metabolism genes tend to get up-regulated. So that just seems to be part of the growing amount of evidence related to the effect of this, these interventions. It also affect, seems to affect telomerase activity. And for those of you not familiar with, this is the stuff that, you know, uh, they tag on, that the, an enzyme that tags on to the end of telomeres, which helps keep your, your chromosomes from deteriorating or fusing um, with other neighboring ones. So, and that affects the number of uh, replications that a cell can undergo, which is for, uh, called a Hayflick limit. And there seems to be a very large uh, effect here, though, Studies are relatively small, and this is there's no kind of measure for telomerase activity. This is sort of just a proportional change. 
So, now what, so that's all very nice. It works for people. That's wonderful. But who cares if it doesn't help the healthcare system, right? So, so what does it do for the healthcare system? So, in this particular study, uh, just the, you know, problem statement. We know that these diseases are expensive. Uh, it looks like these interventions make a difference. And so, what's the effect on the healthcare system and economics of the healthcare system? So, uh, we did a uh, prevent. Propensity scored match retrospective controlled cohort pre-post intervention database analysis. Do not ask me to say that again. Um, and basically, uh, this looked at the resource utilization of all patients participating in the relaxation response programs at the, at the BHI from 2006 to 2014, along with a control set. Now, the advantage we have, we have, and I'm sure we have this here as well, is that we have a very large database in the partner system called RPDR, which encompasses all the data, all the clinical and research databases affiliated with all the hospitals. So you can actually pull uh, wonderful data, uh, research data sets from this to look at. So the measure we looked at was healthcare utilization one year before and one year after the intervention. The unit of analysis was the billable encounter and associated services. And so that was essentially defined as a face-to-face -face contact between a patient and provider whose services are covered under an insurance provider. So that's a little bit specified. We did ask, because we did seem to see a large signal early on, whether or not um, BHI people were just high utilizers to start with and whether or not they were just regressing to the mean like every, you know, over time. And uh, so in this sense, sense we took so to, to look at that, we looked at a subgroup of high util utilizers in the control group because there was a spectrum of utilizers in, in each of these groups. So we took the highest utilizers and we found, and we found a, a, a set in the uh, BHI group that matched them exactly in terms of utilization rate util uh, and uh, maximum utilization and minimum utilization and variance. So this is just a kind of a, a broad view of how this uh, data was covered, uh, refined. And so this is sort of, you think about it just visually. So here's the timeline. Here, here's an individual patient. That's their stay in the healthcare system, right, from time in to time out, or in this case, let's just look a year before and after. And so each of those ticks would be a billable encounter. The diamond would be a um, intervention itself. And, and then we look at pre- and post-utilization rates, right? And for the control group, we did the same thing. Uh, who, and the control group was matched for every conceivable factor. And we use the median time in the system as their intervention time. So we looked at for that pre and post. And this was sort of the overall results. So looking at what was done, functional character is clinical, clinical, clinical encounter, clinical resource use, imaging resource use, laboratory and procedures. And we see when we looked at it as a whole, well, the control group stayed the same, which was, that was great. That's how it should behave. And then we saw that in the intervention group, there's a, a very significant drop in, in utilization rate. Now, when we took the folks and said, okay, well, maybe that's just regression to the mean, we took a group of people and said, okay, let's start them out where they're exactly the same in all characteristics, including their util initial utilization rate. What happens? Well, there was some regression to the mean, so that was expected too. But there was actually a, a, a very significant drop relative to the control group in the BHI group as well. So. There was regression, but there was also a signal, a large signal as well. So this is looking at the site of service, so where was it done? So general, you know, general medicine, specialty care, emergency care, and hospitalizations. And you can see in the, um, in the total group, again, the 
BHI intervention group reduced activity in all, in all categories. And even the high utilizing group, the BH intervention group re reduced utilization at all, at all sites. Um, and uh, so we'll go forward. So just a quick cost saving. I haven't done the full economic analysis yet. This is very rough at this point. So, um, so you know, if, you know, if we looked at emergency department care and assuming societal valuables based on the medical expenditures survey by ARC, if we looked at how many, just by reducing visits alone, we'd probably save, if we, if we did this intervention, somewhere around two to $3,000 per patient per year with a very quick return on investment. And if we looked at all categories of care, assuming that they either had, you know, interacted with one of these sites versus all of these sites, we'd have a, even a, a very broad range of, of cost saving in this, in this groups. So, um, so it does seem to, it does seem to be worth, worth doing. Now, just so you know, to do the cost of doing these interventions, now comparable to, to do an intervention at the BHI versus, let's say, some of the stuff at UMass, like MBSR and other kind of similar, but you know, uh, other related things. So you're talking about $500 per person, ballpark, okay? And you know, if you cut out, if that reduces one emergency room visit, you probably you probably save money. So in conclusion, individual response to stress influences both the individual state of health and their use of healthcare resources. The uh, SMART 3 or P is an intervention which can modify stress, the stress response and resiliency. And it may be cost beneficial through treating it, and through treating individuals may be part of our, our, our armamentarium, helping our healthcare delivery system adapt, build capacity and resilience. So, just to leave it on a little bit of humor. <laughs> so I just want to thank a lot of people here. Um, so Herb Benson and Greg Friccione uh, and all the other folks that are affiliated or associated with the, uh, with the BHI. And so if anybody has any questions, I'm open to that. Um, just make them simple and easy to answer. So, so that's it. second part of that interventions appeared to me to work mostly on, I mean, not on uh, system capacity, not on system variation. So it must be working on the demand. Right. Would, and so would that be correct? And then second, what are your thoughts about doing this on a community and population basis, which I'm obliged to ask in my role? <laughs> Let me just get back to the question, Peggy. Um, so, uh, correct. So the intervention itself is really focusing on, at least in this particular case, looking at the demand side, okay. Um, the, you know, because we haven't quite, we, you know, this is just the beginning, and we, do, we haven't looked at the, the broader impact on the, on the healthcare delivery system, but I would say, you know, I've seen this effect on providers, right? So the less stress you have, usually the more capacity you have. So you can actually, by providing this to providers themselves, um, you will improve their resiliency and capacity. And so there'll be a benefit on that side as well. So you, you're modifying both. Um, 
in terms of um, the effect uh, in a broader in a broader community, um, we don't have the data yet. Um, but my 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 understanding of the of the of the literature and my own analysis say this would be a, a sort of a no brainer. Um, it's relatively inexpensive, and there are probably ways to scale it to make it even less expensive. And um, and because anxiety and stress are such large drivers of healthcare expenditures, um, that uh, it would be one of the tools that I would say would be very useful to turn that vicious cycle to a virtuous cycle. Right? I don't think you don't need. I mean, you don't need a huge amount to tip that cycle into the other direction. Um, you, know, you do need some time. You know, you need time to let it work. But um, but I would say it would be a you know one of the other big advantages the 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 the, the cost benefit ratio is great because the, the the degree of harm that you can do with this is virtually zero, right? You know how you know how harmful is you know meditation though there is some oddball literature out there about that, um, but uh, so so it seems like a very useful tool to put into in terms of population management. I hope that answers your question. Yeah. Did you do any sort of quality analysis on why there's less And if not, do you conjecture? Um, it's a very good question. And we are in the process of uh, looking at that right now. So we've been collecting a lot of PRO, uh, patient-reported outcome uh, data that we've been collecting for the last year. So I would say the... So the short answer is no. I don't have a I don't have a quick answer that I could honestly tell you what what the reason is. Um, if I was going to say what my reaction, my gut reaction to it is, is that as you reduce stress and increase agency in patients, right? Because you know what happens. When, you know, so one of the consequences of stress in all of us is that we become less able to make good decisions. Okay, and this is a very well studied literature. Right, so. When we're very stressed, our perception of the options that are available to us, of decisions to make, narrows down. It's all part of that fight or flight, right? I fight it or get away, right? And so there's a there's a very well-known researcher out in Pittsburgh by a guy named Lowenstein talking about hot and cold decision-making. He's done a lot of research on that stuff. And so when you're under stress, you make, you're make you in the hot decision-making mode, which make, usually makes you a bad decision-maker, okay? So when you reduce stress and allow you to have a more top-down approach to stress, you make you probably make better judgments about when do you need to see a doctor, when do you not need to see a doctor, when do you need to react to something, or or or, or put you know wait and see. And so I would say you know uh, it you know when you're under when you're under stress, your threshold for act, acting that amygdala, uh, the amygdala response is like got to do it, got to do it now, right? Whereas if that's less active, you'd be making more rational choices, which would probably make you choose and more rationally which what aspect of your of healthcare you want to activate. So that would be one hypothesis. Um, you know, and I'm sure there are many others, but I, I'll just leave it there just uh, for now. I hope that I hope that answers your question. Are you looking at, um, or have you looked at differences 
some groups that we might be wanted to identify which ones really um, this was an effective technique on. We're in, the, we're, in the, we're in the process of that right now. I mean, it's a very good question. And I, I have to confess, this is early days. And, and you know, when I first started working for the BHI, um, I was astounded that none of this had been done, right? So, I mean, this actually turns out to be one of the largest database analyses of this type of work, you know, out there. Most of it's all little, little tiny studies. And... Um, but I would say, if, if I mean, I did present data on the particular uh, disease entities, but we did, I did look at classes of, let's say, neurologic, gastrointestinal, other, other sort of stuff. And I would say, um, certainly, I, I have to, I'm just going to try to remember in my brain here for a second, but certainly there was a lot of reduction in the group presenting for GI complaints, for pain complaints, for neurologic complaints, and... Um, and there are one or two other categories that were high, uh, just from a from a sort of a disease categorization perspective. I, uh, the um, low, high income people were also uh, tended to be high utilizers in the subgroup. You know, so were a bit of the worried well, and that had a big reduction. In, and I would think that was part of the reduction. Um, I'd have to go back, and I, I didn't prepare those slides. So, but that, yeah. So there's some stuff. From the school, the clinician sits on in the exam room, um, seeing the patients that we see daily. The patients who often would benefit the most are often most resistant to the antibody program. Um, so the question is two questions. Number one, in your study, is this a self-selected group of well patients who are high utilizers who are amenable to this? Not that everyone would benefit. And number two, how do you get those patients who most need it and are not amenable to it to such programs? Well, so uh, so in terms of the first question, which is um, were these self-selected in some way? Yes, they were. I mean, they were either referred themselves or, or referred by their providers or or there are many ways they could have access to the BHI. We did not make any distinctions. But you have to make the assumption that there was something a little bit different about them that brought them there. So that was the whole point of doing the propensity score matching, to make sure that that was not a bias in the sample. Um, and so we took every pain to avoid that biasing. Um, in terms of what do you do with that patient in front of you, and how do you convince them? Well, that's, that's a very broad question. Um, I would say, you know, one of the best ways to convince somebody to do something is to have done it yourself. So I would suggest that perhaps all our clinicians should have the experience of going through this sort of training so that, you know, who is most convincing to somebody? Somebody who's actually been, been through the same situation that you've been through, right? And so um, if, if I was going to propose, I would say, you know, so you could become the advocate for, for that because then you could show, I mean, and to be fair, I bet there, most physicians here know what stress is. So you could probably communicate to that. Uh, you, you, wanna, you have a response? Come, yeah, well, no, no. I'm, I'm a geriatrician, so a lot of this is generational. Yeah. And a lot of this is cultural. And a lot of this is societal and population-based. And I agree with you totally. Yeah. I, I think that... Well, let me, let me step back. I, I, I think... I, so, I, so in my experience, meditation 
I mean, because it, it is a it is a fundamental piece of what in that program, and it is and what is different about this program than as opposed to let's MBSR, which is just meditation. Um, it, it covers a, a more broad spectrum of tools, and I would say if I was going to critique this particular program, is you know I would say there are meditation is not for everybody. Okay, well, I mean, actually, it is for everybody, but it's not easy for everybody at, at different stages in their life, okay? And I think, for instance, let's say I take a young person down here, you know, meditation might be hard to sit still for, right? You got a lot of energy to burn, right? And so there may be, well, I'm assuming, right? Um, and so there, I think there are different gates. So the goal is the relaxation response, right? Is the, and there are different ways of getting to that. Meditation is a very good one. We've seen that yoga and other, other activities are, are very good for that. And the, and the key is having enough of those gates available to people and identify where they, where they go for people to be, you know, because I don't think there, there is not a one-size-fits-all. And so, you know, you ask a question that's really hard to answer because it, it requires more specification. Um, and that's the engineering me coming out. So, um, so I hope that answers your question. I'm happy to talk about this much further. I don't know. So we've been asking questions about the high utilizers, and you know, I think it's easy to mount hypotheses about how this could help, you know, with the hot spotting issue. Yeah. But I wanted to explore the opposite hypothesis, or the complementary hypothesis, which is that really in an ACO model, um, right. such as our first questioner cares about. The real money is in getting the people who don't need to see the healthcare system, but do, to stop doing that. Right. And because some people, if you're really sick, you're going to engage in the healthcare system, right. you know what. Right. So I was curious if your data actually suggested that's true. The magnitude of benefit in all comers was huge. Yeah. And that's attenuated in the high utilizers, which yeah. made me wonder if the people who are lower utilizers get it. The biggest benefit, is that true? Uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm still, there's a lot of data to work through, but um, but I actually think the middle tier are probably the biggest responders um, in terms of who's getting the most bang for the buck looking at the data. And I think, um, so I think these tools, I mean, honestly, I think these tools should be taught in grade school. Um, and I think they, you know, by increasing resiliency and capacity to handle stress, and things that life throws at you is just a general good. I think, you know, if our goal, if we're going to switch a healthcare system to Ill illness focused to wellness focused, then this is going to be, I think, part of the set of tools that we want to engage with. Um, but I think the short answer is, even though I don't have that complete answer to that, I would say it's, it's, really, the, it's the, really the middle group that get the biggest bang for the buck. Now, I other things that I didn't show here because the analysis stopped off at one year pre and post, one year post. If you look at some of the data for the people that are actually go out longer, it actually has a fairly durable effect, and um, uh, going out quite a few years. And we've, you know, and from the experience, even though the data is only from 2006 to 2014, there were some earlier iterations of this work at the BI Deaconess under Herb Benson. And we've seen that, you know, the, the durability of this sort of work seems to be, you know, we're only seeing some people come back after 10 to 12 years, you know, for a kind of a booster shot, as it were, right? Um, so, uh, 
It's a great question. I, I, I wish there were more people doing this work right now to have all the answers for you, but I, my, my gut reaction is it's the middle tier that's going to get the biggest bang for the buck. So. A lot of people relax by doing things like running and biking. And actually, one of the goals of that is to stress yourself, you put yourself in the pain cave, and then you recover. Uh, there's been some interesting uh, research on that. People that, if you can take something out and bike one legged, I'm told the telomeres are longer in the yep. exercising leg and shorter than that. Right. Uh, so, so, one is did you control for that? And two, is physical stress bad if you have these gene arrays compared to mental stress? So uh, there wasn't any way for us to control for physical stress. I mean, there, there was nothing in the database that allowed us to kind of identify um, exercise patterns or, you know, or look at sort of, I mean, I guess suppose we could have looked at physical occupations to some, some degree. Um, but we didn't have any measures of, because of, these are all large administrative data. I mean, there's very few places that it's actually recorded how much exercise you get. To, I mean, we're starting to get some patient-reported data on that. But that's still kind of beginning stuff. Um, you know, I, I mean, I personally, you know, exercise is probably the universal cure, right? It affects both the mind and the body in, in positive ways. And so if you can get people to exercise, I mean, obviously that's a good thing. Um, you know, a lot of stress is perception, okay? So the stress response is really an arousal response, right? So I'll give you a, for example. Um, so if I'm walking in a dark alley in the middle of the night, it's humid, it's moist, it's dripping off, off the walls, and somebody jumps out at me with a knife, what happens? My heart rate goes up, my blood pressure goes up, my hands get sweaty, I'm ready. If I'm sitting in front of the TV set with a lottery ticket, and they call all my numbers, and I've just won... $10 million, what happens? My heart rate goes up, my blood pressure goes up, my palms get all sweaty. And really the only difference from a physiologic perspective is the meaning I attribute to that arousal state. So, I, you know, so the physical stress is, has a lot to, you know, it's when something is perceived as good or bad stress is, you know, part, is to a large degree um, how, how, you know, how we interpret the meaning. You know, like parachuting, you know, some people jumping out of a parachute, you know, out of an airplane, that is the most terrifying thing in their life. And for other people, it's the most exhilarating thing in their life. So it's kind of a little, little hard. So I would say, you know, on the one hand, I don't understand all the physiology of exercise and how it does all those benefits, but clearly it, it does. And then the other thing is, you know, I think there's stress by, you know, being in that pain cave, you know, you know, I personally do, I do a lot of martial arts, for instance, right? And so some of the things that I do in martial arts, you think, oh, that's insane. Why would you do that to yourself, right? But you feel good afterwards, right? So, um, so that's a good thing. So, I mean, I don't have a, a simple answer for you, but I think it does, it does matter about the, the purpose and the meaning behind the stress. And that, that influences the effect that it's going to have on you. Just before I take Don's question, I'm going to remind us all it's early in the season again. Please put your beepers on vibrate and your phones on vibrate or silent mode. Um, and I will probably start making those announcements at the beginning of the season. Building a little bit on Tim's question, I'm stuck back at your slide on that um, treadmill, um, you know, the, the, the cartoon. 
Yeah, um, our healthcare system is a very dynamic, adaptive system which has very strong profit motive built into it. Um, and I'm wondering about the um, adaptive forces and their, the effect size. Um, that is, the, the, our ability through an intervention like relaxation response, which many of us have been using since the 80s when Benson first published, against the effect sizes of um, these other drivers of the healthcare system, not just utilization, but other major stressors in, in terms of, um, of profit utilization. So uh, that's one reason why I call this an intervention as opposed to the intervention. Right? So because um, I don't think it's it's not the be all end all for everything for everything. Um, I think I completely agree with you that it's a complex dynamic system and, and, and I think it would be I mean, it would be it would be nonsensical to assume that one one intervention is going to change the system as a whole. Uh, systems, because they have complex feedback, you know, I I do some work in you know because complex systems tend to be wicked hard problems, okay, and wicked hard problems actually has a real meaning behind that word, which is these are problems that actually uh, have complex feedback loops in them that actually change and adapt to. To, the, to what you're trying to solve. And in fact, part of the problem becomes definitional. As you're trying to put your hands around the complex system, how do you actually make an intervention? And so just like the, intervent like the system is complex, the, the, system, the response to change the system has to be multidimensional and has to be um, work in multiple areas. Now, I think we're at a very opportune time as we're switching towards an ACL model. You know, I think there is a very, there is a potential here for shifting some of those financial incentives that that we've talked you've talked about. I think um, there are many other you know there, we have a whole range of new technologies that may become very helpful in terms of uh, making life better for everybody if we learn how to use them properly. Uh, that's a big caveat. Um, and I think, you know, and I think things like this, which uh, are are not technology intensive, and you know, are, go to wellness issues, uh, also become part of the equation. So I think, I mean, I don't want to be simplistic. I don't, I don't think this is the answer to the system. All right, I, and I don't like that article. I think it's really a, it's a we have to you know, con contrive or build a complex response. To a complex system, and I think you know we're. I, I, I'm optimistic, honestly. I mean, I you know I I see lots of potential for a lot of things, um, and I think it's it's an exciting time, and I you know and we want to go from an you know from an allostatic model to really kind of an adaptive model, and so and that means unfortunately there will be change, and we have to be prepared to. Embrace change. I mean, change is not necessarily a bad thing. Just like stress is not, you know, a lot depends on what the meaning that you associate with the change. You know, is the change a good thing or is the change a bad thing? Change itself is not bad or good. It's what we associate with it. And so I would say, uh, so that was a long answer, I think, to your question. <laughs> uh, um, so I think the, I, it is not the answer. It is a piece of the answer. And just like all these other things are going to be pieces of an answer that, and, and part of that, global answer is going to be 
talking and engaging and being being very open and listening to each other about how we adapt to the the new the new stressors that are up. Because not again, not all stressors are bad. You know, exercise is a good stressor. So, Steve, yeah. we're going to take the last question. Great, thanks. It was a great talk, by the way. Really terrific, and look forward to talking with you more. Um, how should at the forty thousand foot level? How do you think we should figure out how to match these things to the right patients? Which I think is where a lot of the discussion has been going. Um, so we have all sorts of uh, both uh, pharmacological interventions and non-pharmacological things that we can now offer to focus on things, whether they're health coaching or using sensor technology or focusing on the social determinants of health, like the hotspotting interventions, using financial incentives uh, for health behavior change and motivational interviewing. Oh, there's a whole bunch of things, right? And this is just one. So what do you think we should be doing to figure this out? You know, we don't have good predictive models around service utilization. We don't have good predictive models around who can respond to these things. So if that's the question, we have lots of tools, lots of things we can put in our toolbox. How do we go about figuring out how we both predict who's going to be uh, using the most services, uh, the ones that, are, and also how, who's going to respond most, and then matching those towards the patients? Some people think it's all epigenetics and genomics and proteomics. Other people think it's something around personalized medicine that has to do with predictive modeling. What do you think is the way, what do you think is the way we should go about figuring this out? So I'm just going to segue from what I was just talking about and say I don't think there's a single answer to that. Um, I would say somebody who's put a lot of thought into this, who I respect a lot in this area, is Greg Friccioni. Um, and we've been talking a lot about uh, sort of resilient, sort of things like resiliency indexes, right? So which incorporate a lot of, you know, I mean, if we're, if we're talking about this particular kind of intervention. And so um, Greg has done some, some interesting work looking at, you know, how do you actually capture or measure how resilient somebody may be? And, you know, and trying to use that as, you know, a predictive marker. And that will include physiology and social context and past history and other things. Um, I mean, I think it's a, you have to throw everything at it. I mean, you know, I'm, a, I'm, I'm, I'm very ecumenical about in terms of what, what are the right tools. I mean, I think you get a bunch of smart people in the room and you kind of, you just work at it. Um, and preferably people from a lot of different perspectives, as, man, as many different perspectives as possible. Because um, uh, that, that's where we really kind of get the new and interesting insights. So, I mean, the short answer is, I think, retrospectively, you know, you got a lot of databases. We can start exploring and hypothesizing about what might be predictors. I think we have to have a measurable, um, a, a measure of resiliency that, that we can use to use and refine over time to, to help us understand who these folks are going to be, and then uh, and then try things. I mean, you know, you got to you got to throw a lot of spaghetti against the wall. I mean, I that's uh, it, there's just no way around it. I mean, uh, so, uh, so I don't have a simple answer to that. So I'm a big believer in pasta. It's. Uh, <laughs> Thank you for coming today and for being one of the smart people who want to put in that group together and also someone who wants to throw a lot of spaghetti on the wall. <laughs>